Welcome to Power Decisions, a new energy series that explores the world's energy sources and the politics and power behind the clean transition. I'm your host, Marie Harf. My guest today is someone I served with during Barack Obama's presidency, Energy Secretary Ernest Moniz. He was appointed during President Obama's second term, and he was instrumental in negotiations toward a comprehensive agreement on the Iranian nuclear program, where we worked closely together. He is literally a nuclear physicist, so I couldn't think of a better person to talk to about this. We talk about the clean technologies that will have an impact on our energy future, how geopolitical tensions may impact how we get there. But I had to start first with his thoughts on how prepared we are. Well, I think we are clearly uh, way behind uh, the the pace at which we need to introduce uh, the clean energy technologies. Uh, as we go forward, it's quite clear that the concerns that have been expressed scientifically are quite real. Global warming is happening at a pace that exceeds the one that we were evaluating uh, only a few years ago. And yet the introduction of the clean energy technologies that would lower greenhouse gas emissions has gone way slower than required. And indeed, emissions keep rising uh, as opposed to falling. So we have a, a major challenge I've said many times that I think to meet this challenge, we need uh, technology innovation, we need business model innovation, and we need policy innovation. It's the last one that really troubles me. We, uh, in the United States, certainly we continue to have not only a failure to enact any kind of national program that will take us to the kinds of deep uh, emissions cuts that are that are needed. But uh, in addition, uh, the whole argument has uh, rather incredibly fallen into a partisan uh, discussion for something that is as nonpartisan as you could uh, imagine scientifically. So I remain an optimist. It's with mixed emotions, I have to say, that I think the driver that will tip us politically towards the solution space is going to be the continued rise in extreme weather, uh, which, of course, is creating enormous uh, challenges, economic challenges, human challenges, social challenges. And I think that that increase in extreme weather eventually will drive our political system, our political so-called leaders to uh, lead only because, frankly, the voting public is getting more and more concerned over the impacts. I think that's fascinating. It's almost policymaking by catastrophe. And you see that in places like Florida, where there are a lot of conservative politicians, but who see very, you know, at a very firsthand level, the the rising sea levels, these really significant climate events. I, I guess I know you're not a politician and I don't I don't want to be partisan here. You are an optimist, but we are in an election season facing the possible return of an administration under Donald Trump that was pretty hostile to clean energy solutions here. Do you still have that optimism facing that possible reality that the catastrophes will be so big and so great that we will actually act? Let me start by saying that over many years, independent of the political flavor uh, in the White House or in the Congress, we have seen actually quite strong support for technology and technology innovation. Clearly, the 
the problems arise uh, on the policy side. For example, uh, most students of the climate challenge would argue, and certainly economists would argue, that we need a price of some type on carbon emissions. That, of course, is a political uh, lightning rod so far. So I think the combination of technology innovation, the fact that I believe that industry, business, is reacting with interesting new business models. The fact is, you mentioned uh, obliquely, I think, the possibility that uh, President Trump could could be reelected and go back to some of the policies that he had in place. A reminder, when in President Trump's uh, term from 2017 on, business did not deflect itself from its commitment towards lower carbon and to, and to new business models. I do have optimism on the uh, technology and business model innovation fronts. It's really on the policy front where we have been pretty much stuck. Uh, I'll go out on, on a limb. Sometime in this decade, I believe we will have a serious national policy in going towards the low carbon future. Okay, well, I am writing that down Sometimes in this, sometime in this decade. I'm taking that prediction to the bank. You were a policymaker. You were at the highest levels of government. And we were confronting these issues even then. We've been confronting them for decades. Are there things we could have done differently in the Obama administration? How do you look back at that? Well, of course, uh, as you know very well, I was uh, in the Obama administration in the second term. And I think that I personally would have liked to have seen more done in the first term. Now, when I became secretary in 2017, uh, in 2013, excuse me, for the uh, second uh, Obama uh, term, it was pretty early on. It was in June when the president made his uh, Georgetown uh, speech that committed the administration to a strong push on climate and clean energy in the second term. And that followed. I might uh, say as an aside, I remember that speech very, very well because uh, it was outdoors at uh, Georgetown and it was an incredibly hot day. And it reminded us all about the importance of- uh, It made it real. It made Uh, it real. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, But then uh, when the president made that commitment, that was followed through. For example, in 2015, of course, uh, there was one of the more important COP meetings, the, the annual climate meeting, the one coming up in a few weeks in the Emirates in 2015, that was in Paris. And that led to some significant, at least, elevation of commitments globally, including in the United States. But I would also remind people, uh, in many cases, I think, inform people, but in Paris, the French decided that the national leaders would come at the beginning of the meeting and not at the end of the meeting. So the first day of the two-week meeting uh, was when the national leaders were present. That included President Obama. And the announcement that President Obama made on the first day was about something called mission innovation, in which the United States had taken a lead. France and India were also uh, early on uh, members. So this was the first time really in the international context that clean energy technology innovation was put at the center of climate response. And 20 countries and the EU 
uh, committed at that time. There are more countries now. It remains uh, a strong initiative looking at ways to collaborate internationally on clean energy. So in that term, the President Obama's second term, I do think that we made some substantial progress on the technology front and on the policy front. In particular, on the policy front, I also uh, would remind that in 2015, the Clean Power Plan was put forward to dramatically reduce emissions from the utility sector. Well, the fact is that that rule was then ruled out in the next administration. It did not, therefore, it is not in effect. However, the goals that were set for decarbonization in that plan have been exceeded even without the plan in place. And why is that? That that seems counterintuitive. Why is that? A major reason is that, first of all, it was a major signaling to the economy, to the uh, especially to the utility sector. I should say as an aside, just to be clear, that the electricity sector has always been and will remain the lead horse in decarbonizing the economy. That message was sent clearly. We saw then the dramatic drop in costs for things like solar energy, uh, wind energy, etc. And what one had was the utilities, because I mentioned earlier, by the way, again, the private sector did not deflect from its commitments to lowering carbon. And in particular, the utility sector uh, carried on its commitments in switching mainly the switch from about half of our coal use switched into natural gas and renewables, and that lowered carbon emissions quite quite dramatically, and in fact accounted for something like 70% of the United States uh, carbon emission reductions. So a lot happened uh, in those years, and certainly a lot has continued to happen, especially in the clean energy technology space, and especially now with the Biden administration As a reminder, we have had now a trifecta of laws put into place with significant impact here. One was the infrastructure law of uh, 2021. Secondly, I would put the Chips in Science Act, the science part in particular, with lots of clean energy commitments. And of course, third, the uh, IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, with many, many tax incentives. Is that actually working? I don't mean to interrupt you, but so many uh, climate activists talk about the infrastructure law. We talk about many pieces of legislation. Are these working? Do we see this tangibly working on the ground? Now, in terms of the working of the infrastructure law, first of all, it (laughs) it does take time to build up the programs, but we are seeing it right now. For example, just recently, the Department of Energy announced one of the major initiatives of that law was to move forward on what are called clean hydrogen hubs, uh, regional hubs uh, around most parts of the country, at least. And that was put into motion. Uh, Those negotiations will start with the various, uh, at least potential awardees. They will get $7 billion worth of funding to kickstart hydrogen supply which will draw from the Inflation Reduction Act, 
and hydrogen market formation, uh, which is really, uh, in our view, the bigger challenge. And all of these hubs all have different approaches to create demand for, for hydrogen. Industrial demand, like green steel, heavy transportation demand, like heavy trucking, uh, for example, and utility demand, introducing hydrogen into the electricity uh, generation system. So the message is hydrogen is very flexible. It has the opportunity of decarbonizing multiple sectors. And because of the infrastructure law, in synergy with the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, we are seeing uh, forward motion right now today. I want to pick up on hydrogen a little bit because there's a lot of touting of the potential for hydrogen to help reduce carbon emissions. We hear a lot about blue hydrogen, and green hydrogen, and the production of that kind of hydrogen that actually involves fossil fuels. And I've heard critics of hydrogen say it doesn't really help with net zero emission goals, that it's not perfect. I know nothing is perfect, no technology is perfect, but I wonder how you're looking at hydrogen since you brought it up. Yes. Well, first of all, Marie, I have to say uh, hydrogen today is mainly gray hydrogen. Okay. Tell us more about gray hydrogen. So gray hydrogen is the process where uh, natural gas is reacted with steam, basically, and it produces uh, CO2 and hydrogen. And that hydrogen uh, is used for refineries. It makes the oil lighter, for example, in many cases. Uh, it's also used for uh, making fertilizer, you know, ammonia for, for fertilizer and the like. So blue hydrogen would be the next step where you make the hydrogen in the same way from natural gas, but you capture the carbon dioxide, do not release it into the atmosphere, and put it, uh, put it below ground. Green hydrogen would be splitting water rather than methane, using electricity, electrolysis, so-called, and that produces hydrogen and oxygen. There is another, uh, I will mention two other approaches, pink hydrogen. <laughs> I'm sorry about all of the colors of the rainbow, but th this is the conventional uh, terminology. Pink hydrogen means doing electrolysis, but using nuclear-generated electricity to split the water. And I'll mention another uh, yet one more, turquoise hydrogen, which is splitting, we're back to natural gas, but splitting it with high temperature heat rather than steam. The advantage there is the carbon comes out as a solid uh, and is very easily disposed of without losing it to the atmosphere. And then I'll mention one more. It's sometimes called white or gold hydrogen. Uh, and that is actually mining for hydrogen using natural hydrogen uh, out of the earth. Uh, it's still in its early stages. Uh, there is actually a village in Mali, which is run on natural hydrogen. So there are many, many different approaches. Uh, many of them do not release uh, carbon to the atmosphere, even if starting with natural gas, like the turquoise hydrogen. And with blue hydrogen, it all depends how much of that CO2 you capture. So generally speaking, to be clean hydrogen, one is talking about the order of 95% capture and disposal storage of that CO2. So there are many approaches. We will see different approaches used in different regions of the United States, in different parts of the world. And the bottom line is you will have a substantial reduction 
of, uh, of carbon emissions. If the demand side succeeds, uh, if we start using clean hydrogen in all the sectors that I, that I mentioned earlier. And that's in many respects uh, a, a business decision. You keep mentioning that the private sector is, and I think for a lot of people, uh, look, I, I work in narratives and, and communications a lot. Sometimes the human impact of climate change doesn't move people, but the business numbers do. I think maybe particularly on the right, more conservatives in the United States, if you can show that it's profitable, that feels like the way to maybe get people to buy into this. Well, for sure, if it's when it's profitable, it, there's a big impetus. In fact, we talked about hydrogen. Let me combine the discussion of hydrogen with the earlier discussion about clean electricity. Many think that uh, clean electricity and the electrification of other sectors, like electric automobiles, for example, together with hydrogen, could be the winning combination for a very low carbon economy. And that would be supplemented by removing legacy carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and the oceans. That's my trifecta for, uh, for a potentially very, very low carbon economy. As you said, new business models are being created. Obviously, the financial incentives that are included in some of the laws are trying to speed up the adoption of those, those technologies. And that's very important. The private sector is the place where the enormous amount of capital resides that will be needed to transform the American and the global economy. However, I do want to say that it's uh, while the clearly business is central to this, I go back to the extreme weather, which does have enormous human impacts. And that's where, again, to repeat, I think we will see the tipping point politically to bring all of this together. I'm glad you brought up the global economy because I, I want to transition a little bit to some geopolitical questions that are related. I'm curious your thoughts on how much you think the war in Ukraine has set back Europe's energy transition and sort of their commitment to making some of these same investments. Obviously, there have been both in, in Ukraine, but other parts of Europe, severe consequences from the war with Russia. Also, of course, what's happening in the Middle East right now. So I, I think sometimes people feel like we have to choose between geopolitical realities and addressing climate change. How do you puzzle through that? Well, first of all, in Ukraine, obviously the major issue was the essentially the, the near stoppage of natural gas exports from Russia uh, to Europe. That required a huge reorganization of the global gas markets, and there was a period of extremely high natural gas prices. By the way, United States LNG, of course, played a major role in getting Europe through what would have been a very, very difficult time if it weren't for the combination of new liquefied natural gas coming on the market, combined with a relatively warm winter uh, in Europe, which uh, was a major factor. And which proves your point. It's unseasonably warm all the time now. <laughs> it's, it has been unseasonably warm. As you know, every month, basically, we are breaking records for the hottest month on record. And that, in turn, is connected to the increase in extreme weather and all of that. Going back to the Ukraine situation, it clearly led to some additional coal use, for example, in Germany. But what is less often said is those very, that very high 
spike in natural gas prices caused many developing countries to also shift to more coal. So in the near term, there was clearly a negative effect with regard to carbon, not to mention, obviously, the great suffering that continues in Ukraine. However, for the longer term, what the Ukraine situation has done is is recommit Europe and others to the low-carbon future because energy insecurity is all about carbon. Wind and solar and nuclear, uh, etc., do not create energy insecurity. They contribute to energy security. It's the imports of fossil fuels that put economies at risk if there is dislocation. Similarly, in the Middle East, if the situation in Israel and Gaza and, and the region develops into a wider war, which obviously we all hope will not happen, that does put at risk, of course, major sources of oil to the world. But again, it would be the same thing. I think there would be a very, very bad shock to economies globally. But for the longer term, it would drive home the lesson, we need to transition our economy to low carbon. And that will be good for energy security as well as climate. I hope that People fighting in these wars, people affected by them are looking at the long term. I think it's often very hard from a policymaking perspective in the middle of such such a crisis, but I think you're right. I would be remiss not to ask you about the role that nuclear energy can play in the transition. You're obviously a nuclear physicist, and I know you've been a proponent of nuclear energy playing a role. But I candidly think a lot of people still have a fear um, based on past accidents based on their caricature of it. I, I'd love for you to, to say a few words about the role you think that nuclear energy can play. I know Europe has looked at this actually probably more than the United States. Well, I think in the United States, uh, the, uh, the activity also is quite intense. Let me say first that it's clear that there has never been such a period of innovation in the nuclear space as there has been over the last one or two decades. Consequently, there are many technologies that are now coming to the cusp of deployment that have, in fact, very, very strong safety features. They are so-called passively safe so that an accident uh, would not lead to public health concerns, as we have seen, of course, in the past with uh, Chernobyl, with, uh, with Fukushima in particular. Now, I think what one is seeing is that many... Uh, environmental groups, for example, are taking a very, very strong position in favor of an expansion of nuclear energy precisely because it provides carbon-free energy. Indeed, after the Obama administration with a couple of colleagues, uh, we started a nonprofit called the Energy Futures Initiative. I'm also involved uh, leading the Nuclear Threat Initiative. And those two organizations, plus the Clean Air Task Force, a well-known environmental organization, we have worked together and will be presenting together at the upcoming climate meeting in the Emirates on nuclear power and trying to put forward a playbook for how the many countries that are considering launching nuclear programs can do so uh, economically, safely, and responsibly. So I think we are at a, uh, we, we will see much more discussion of nuclear energy at the upcoming climate meeting 
in the Emirates uh, than we have seen in past uh, climate meetings. Now, whether that translates or how rapidly that translates into an expanded deployment, we will see. But the general expectation is that to be material in impacting uh, the climate challenge, nuclear power will need roughly a tripling by mid-century, certainly doubling, perhaps tripling, which is not unlike the kinds of major expansions also talked about for renewables, for example. However, let me also mention that in the nuclear case, let me mention just two things uh, quickly. One is that some of the new technologies, the so-called generation four technologies, often have much higher temperatures of operating. And that means that in addition to electricity, they also will have uses in supplying heat for industrial operations. And secondly, nuclear is generally taken to mean strictly nuclear fission, splitting uranium to make electricity. But I do want to make sure we don't lose track of the enormous progress going on on nuclear fusion, taking light elements and fusing them together to release huge amounts of energy. Fusion has no issues of the type that you referred to in terms of public safety, and it does not have long-lived radioactive waste to deal with. So fusion, which is making enormous progress, don't take your eye off the innovations in fusion, really, I think, have, have tremendous progress. I will confess, I'm on the board of one of the privately funded fusion companies. So uh, I'm trying to walk the talk and uh, see these technologies come forward. Well, I think this is absolutely a sea change, particularly in how environmental groups are looking at nuclear technology. So uh, we will watch what happens at COP. In the minute we have left, we are a little short on time here. There's a lot of doom and gloom in this space. We're talking about technologies today, but when you think about how far we have to go to meet our goals, it can feel daunting. So I wonder if you could leave us today with where you think the best hope is, where you feel it. I know you're an optimist, but it can be hard in this space. I do think that we are going to have to face the fact, and I think we are in the COP context, getting more and more attention paid to the fact that even as we bend the curve on emissions and do limit uh, the growth of global temperatures, we will also need to have in parallel a major focus on adaptation. Because the reality is, look, we are now seeing 1.1, 1.2 degrees centigrade of warming uh, compared to pre-industrial times. And just look around us and we see these dramatic impacts in terms of storm intensities and flooding and droughts and wildfires and all that extreme weather that we discussed earlier on. So we are going to have to adapt even as we do not, you know, lose sight of the, you know, the importance of mitigation of these climate effects as, first of all, the most effective and least expensive way of addressing climate change, that is mitigation. But we'll have to adapt to. We'll have to have some seawalls and we'll have to have some other, it may sound low tech, but other ways of addressing uh, the, the impacts that our societies and our fellow citizens uh, are suffering from already. And un unfortunately, there will be more of that as the temperature 
continues to rise before we manage to uh, destabilize it. That was former Energy Secretary Ernest Moniz. Thanks for listening to the special energy series where we explore the world's energy sources and the politics and powers behind the clean transition. We'll drop new episodes here every month. I'm Marie Harf. See you next time.